From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. Part of our obligation is to educate you on the latest technology, and there's nothing more cutting edge than quantum computing. At the University of Washington, Peter Chapman has uh, worked on this for a long time, part of the Northwest Quantum Nexus. He runs a company called IonQ. And I guess we should just uh, we should just start at the most elementary level. What makes a quantum computer different from what I've got on my desktop, Peter? It's a great question. So uh, your kind of, I'll call them classical computers, are uh, digital. They're based on ones and zeros. Um, you could think of them just as lots of little switches. But the in nature, Mother Nature does, isn't a digital world. It's quantum mechanical. Instead, what you have is uh, ones and zeros in superposition and a probability uh, between those two. You know, we used to think of atoms as having an electron and it had a specific position, kind of like you could think of it as like a, a solar system. But what we found out was that, in fact, actually, basic molecules have a probability of being in, a, in one place, but not a certainty. And so what these uh, computers do is they use quantum mechanics to do computation. And it's really, it's a bizarre world um, because we uh, don't experience quantum mechanics as human beings. Um, This only really happens down at the atomic level. And the, the rules that apply at the atomic level are just really so foreign to yours and my kind of everyday, you know, existence. But what we're doing is we're using subatomic particles to uh, build the next generation of of, uh, computing. And that's what's so exciting. It is pretty amazing. Although I find from experience and having had actual discussions about subatomic particles with a group of friends, that it's a a magical world. And there's really no point in trying to uh, make people understand exactly what they are. But there is a clear difference in what they can do if they're if they're made into a computer. They're, I know you guys are going through to a lot of trouble to design these things. So there there must be some holy grail or a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. So what is the goal of quantum computing? What is it you're trying to achieve that can't be done with my iPhone? So that's, if you look in a quantum computer. Um, first is it's it can model Mother Nature uh, much better than you can on a uh, classical system because it's using the same rules that nature uses. So that's the kind of first benefit. Mm-hmm. The next one is the amount of parallel computation that can be achieved at um, 120 qubits. So in a classical world, you know, 120 bits is nothing, right? You're, mm-hmm. You get a, a gigabyte hard drive nowadays almost for free. Um, so just 120 uh, qubits would allow you to do in parallel uh, to consider the same number of possibilities as there is atoms in the known universe, all, you know, 11 uh, billion light years across. Jeez. So... <laughs> And we're talking about building a device by the end of the decade that would have a thousand uh, qubits, and that's two to the eight hundred and eighty more than there is atoms in the, the known universe. So we're we're talking about numbers which are so large, in the trillions of zeros after them, they're so large it's it's really hard to comprehend 
kind of the, the computational power of these machines. This, so this is unimaginable computing power. And I, I'm already impressed with what ChatGPT can do on a, on a regular <laughs> machine. So if you had this, you're, you're like creating another human brain. That's what it sounds like that, to me. Um, well, that is the hope. And in fact, actually, what we've seen so far is even with these early machines, is that we can best the best classical machine learning, which is what Chat um, GPT is using, using a quantum computer. And you know, you could kind of think of it this way, which is um, when you're sitting down in a in an AI sense, is that if you had one of these powerful quantum computers, it could look at you know trillions, billions, even much larger numbers of possible combinations to come up with an answer for you in a way that today's classical computers just can't. Okay, now let's talk about the mechanism required to bring this about. You use uh, what are called uh, trapped ions, I believe, to represent these these qubits. And my understanding is that you have to, these are, as you point out, tiny, tiny, tiny particles that have to be kept at absolute zero so they don't move around and have to be read out with lasers and uh, have to be protected from outside influences. So what, what does this machine look like? Doesn't there have to be a lot of ancillary equipment to create this kind of rarefied environment for these ions to do their job? You got it almost 100% correct. In ours, we can run at room temperature. Ah. And it doesn't have to be down in, uh, at zero degrees, um, which kind of removes a bunch of you know, bizarre hardware that's required to get down to zero degrees. But yes, uh, we're down at uh, 0.02 nanometers. This is down to the width of an individual atom. So you're kind of really down to the smallest possible particles that we can possibly do. And we're using those for qubits, or you could think of it kind of as an analogy as bits. And if you do that as a comparison to classical, you know, you probably know that um, people are competing right now in the seven nanometer space or five nanometer space for classical chips, but we're all the way down to 0.02 nanometers. So even smaller than what you see in your classical uh, chips that you would have in your iPhone. You're 100% right in that these things, they need to be isolated from the environment. These qubits are just very fragile. It doesn't take much to any kind of interaction with them. Suddenly um, throws them off and they, it's called decohere, meaning that they basically are no good for computation. So what we do is we put them in a vacuum chamber. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little little package, um, just a couple inches across. And inside there, there's a chip. And that chip is levitating the atoms just above the chip. And so they're perfectly isolated. You know, if you have kids, these things kind of scream, don't touch me all the time. Uh-huh. And the way that it levitates is the same way that if you've seen... Um, you know, those kind of desk accessories that yes. levitate yeah. a, a little globe or a pen or something? I, I have well, one of those. Do. I have one of okay. those. It's so, magic. So the same thing, okay. except that we're down at an individual atom. Yeah. And so then uh, they're perfectly isolated from the environment. And then what you do is you program them using lasers, using light. And so the light comes in and interacts with the uh, atoms and entangles them, which is one of the crazy things that happens in quantum mechanics. And it allows us to program them and then run a computation and then read out an answer. So it's a bit of an exotic environment. Although, you know, to be honest, today's modern 
processors are equally exotic. Yeah. You know, for the average person. But come on, you have you have little tiny subatomic particles in a vacuum protected from the outside, which you can read remotely with lasers. That's really exotic. Yeah. And this can, is. and this is this can be made to be a a reliable computing system, huh? Even though it seems just uh, it just seems so delicate. <laughs> it does. You know, the funny thing is we run uh, now with both, you know, Google, Microsoft and and Amazon. We run customer jobs all day long with these kind of 24-7. So, yes, it can be made very reliable. Um, and, in fact, actually, as you start to shrink down the, the package of this, um, you, you know, kind of we're in the same process as, as kind of the computer industry was in the 1970s. It started with really big machines. True. And then it became much smaller. As you shrink them, they, come, they become much more stable. And so we're kind of down to the point now where, it can be in an environment, in a really noisy environment, and it doesn't really care anymore. Mm. So, so you're saying you're um, you're using these machines now for commercial purposes? We we are, yeah. We um we're doing things like um, what's the best way to load planes, or mm-hmm. doing predictive part failure, or uh, predicting financial results. Really? So, yeah, it's um these things these machines are good at solving optimization problems. Mm-hmm. And so uh, luckily, just about everything can be converted into an optimization problem, which means that just about every every business probably needs to have a quantum computer or at least access to one in the years coming. Okay, so what's what's the typical size of one of these quantum computers when you add in, you know, the ancillary machinery to keep it in a vacuum and insulated from the environment? What What is the size of the unit? They're pretty big right now, although our next generation is going to fit within just a handful of standard racks that you'd see in a, you know, regular data center. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're kind of, we're, we have them on a, a weight loss program at the moment <laughs> and shrinking the, shrinking the size of each, each generation. Now following kind of the traditional, you know, if you looked at the ENIAC system originally, you know, it took up an entire floor. Right. Um, vacuum tubes. Computing. Yeah. Vacuum tubes and all the rest. It was huge. And then, you know, it didn't take long before, it started to get much more reasonably. But, uh, but I assume once you get computing down to the atomic particle level, you, you have pretty much reached the limit of miniaturization, haven't you? Uh, yeah, there is no, at least not that we know of, but um, you know, there isn't anything smaller than that. And what does one of these units sell for on the open market? Well, we haven't given out pricing, but um, you know, it'll be a while before you find them down at Best Buy. So these are... <laughs> You should think in the millions of dollars, not um, not in the tens of thousands or whatever. So it'll probably be, my guess is that, um, you know, uh, 20 years from now, maybe 30 years from now, you'll be able to see, you know, an iWatch that has a quantum processor in it. Seriously? Um, but it'll, well, yeah, you, it'll, you, it'll you be could, a while. You, you could create a, a wearable computer or a cell phone computer that can maintain a vacuum? Oh, yeah. No, the, the vacuum doesn't have to be big. We're containing a handful of atoms, um, so the vacuum actual size could be half a centimeter. You know, a lot of times people think vacuums; they think really, really big. Yeah, this doesn't require that. So I could I could drop it, and it would still work, huh? Oh yeah, we're already at the place now, which is really interesting. Is you can kind of pound on the table while it's doing doing computation, and it doesn't disturb it. Really? Have you tried that? Is that one of your tests? 
Well, it's an unofficial test. You know, one <laughs> one drops one's cup of coffee on the table and it's like, oh, it's still working. So, um, okay, so you mentioned some of the applications, like being able to efficiently pack an airplane. What other intractable, currently intractable problems could, could these things solve? Well, so, you know, chemistry is uh, an obvious thing to do. You can do you know, simulations of chemistry in one of these in the way that you can't in a classical system. So today what we do is we do drug trials, which cost billions of dollars and take forever. And we know the success on that is very low. Um, you know, we, we just saw, I think it was in a, what, just the other day, an HIV vaccine that failed its, its drug trial. Well, now what you could do is run all the trials in the quantum computer itself. Um, you could run millions of them and see which ones would actually work before you run it out to a drug trial. So there's an expected that it will be a revolution in chemistry, which would, will impact the pharma business, but also material science. And so things like we're working with Hyundai on a next generation of battery technology. But, you know, material science is a very broad category. So it's everything from aircraft wings to you know batteries to cars i mean it's it's everything in manufacturing you know coming from star trek we we don't have transparent aluminum yet so um presumably that will be worked on sometime in the future with a quantum computer then i have to ask about the dark side what happens if one of these things falls into vladimir putin's hands uh that's a great question too so one of the applications that has already been found on quantum computing is um, breaking encryption. So when you send um, when you send me an email to join today's um, conversation, that was protected with encryption mm-hmm. and uh, using RSA, which is a company that makes that encryption. They have said that it would take 300 trillion years using today's supercomputers to break just that one email's encryption. So you can feel pretty safe that it's going to work fairly well yeah. because no one's going to spend that kind of energy. Unfortunately, with a big enough quantum computer, it could be broken in seconds. Wow. So the, the negative to this technology is that much of our digital life is based on encryption, which is now vulnerable to quantum computers. Uh, it's everything from protecting you know, digital content like movies to the web itself, all those HTTPS that you see in your browser, that's all being encrypted to banking websites, to national security, to, you know, the security on on weapon systems. So all those things are now starting to be at risk and need to be upgraded to a post-quantum era where quantum computers cannot um, break into them. So that is the negative. Like, you know, many technologies, it's both good and bad. We need the government and we need industry to kind of step up because we're likely going to be coming to that point fairly quickly. Yeah. And is there a fix for that? Uh, there is. There's, you know, the, the U.S. government is, um, I believe the NIST is working on kind of what are the next generation algorithms that would be quantum safe. And um, and then, you know, to go and, and get industry and, and the military and everyone to change their underlying technology. Presumably sometime in the future, there'll be a new version of the browser that comes out that you'll be asked to upgrade to that will have quantum safe 
encryption in it. Really? That is being currently worked on. I'll put a plug in now for that. When you get asked to upgrade, please upgrade. Yeah. NIST being the National Institute for uh, Standards and Technology? That's correct. Okay, so I, I've learned at least one thing here. We're going to be getting a, a browser upgrade soon, and I better click yes <laughs> on it. Um, yep. So that's pretty impressive. And this, though, represents uh, the the end of the line for uh, for computing sophistication. So beyond this, it'd have to be like an entirely different technology that goes beyond digital? Um, well, I think there's still innovation to happen in digital. Quantum computers are good at certain applications, but not all applications. So there still needs to be innovation on the classical side. You know, I think quantum computers will take over for certain application areas, but there are certain things that um, that classical will always probably have a benefit to. But it's hard to imagine to how we would get to more parallelism for the problems that we've been talking about other than quantum. But you know, I think in science, it's not it's never a good idea to say this is the end. There's always somebody smarter comes along and says, oh, I have a better, better mousetrap. So, yeah, I just wish my Outlook email file would open a little faster. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, by the way, will this make self-driving cars trustworthy and reliable? Uh, very much so. And with Hyundai, we're also working on self-driving cars as well. Um one of the big challenges in self-driving cars is they're using machine learning and they're busily running around cars all over the planet to collect data to train the machine learning. The problem is, is how do you know that you've collected a sample set of all possible scenarios? You know, what if there was a mother with three children who was raining, has groceries, two dogs and a cat and crossing, you know, during a thunderstorm? We know we've ever seen that scenario um, before. And so, and if you don't know that you've captured all possible scenarios, how do you know what the car will do in response? Because right. there was no training data for it. Well, with quantum computing, we've shown that even when you have missing gaps in the data, you can get uh, the quantum computer to figure out kind of what it will do in, in that case and to be able to test it. And so we've shown that quantum computing can do a better uh, object detection. Uh, for instance, we've been working with images from Hyundai for things like street signs and people and trees and all those kinds of things. That was based on cameras. We're now working uh, with them on 3D point clouds. So this is now using LIDAR to do object detection. So um, yes, definitely self-driving cars is a, you know, a big area for quantum computing. Well, you've just gotten a uh, glimpse into the future from someone who is building that future, Peter Chapman of IonQ and also uh, of the University of Washington. Peter, thanks very much for coming on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me today. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's morning news, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's morning news. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. 